For Rewire.news, I'm Jen Stanley, and this is Choiceless. Today, I'd have to say it was one of my proudest moments as Speaker of the House. That's Massachusetts House Speaker Robert DeLeo. He's a Democrat from Winthrop. And when you look back at the history of Massachusetts and our legacy in terms of civil rights and what we have done, and you consider the fact that this is just another a great moment in our history. It's June of 2016, and he's talking about a bill they just voted to pass that expanded civil rights protections for transgender Bay Staters. And I can't tell you how proud I am of the great vote that we have here today. But not everyone was happy. Religious conservatives who don't support LGBTQ rights oppose the law and have tried to get it repealed. It means any man who says he is a woman can enter a woman's locker room, dressing room, or bathroom at any time. They gained enough signatures for a ballot referendum to do so by telling constituents that it allowed sexual predators to stalk victims in public bathrooms. And if you see something suspicious and say something to authorities, you could be the one arrested and fined up to $50,000. In the upcoming midterm election, Massachusetts voters will decide. A yes vote keeps protections in place for transgender base staters, and a no vote overturns the law, taking away these protections. Late last summer, I was in a lift with a driver named Rachel Brown. She's a retired engineer who lives in a Boston suburb. She wanted to talk to me about question three. I thought listeners might be interested in what she had to say, so I caught up with her a few weeks before the election. This is her story. If you appreciate this and other stories you hear on Choiceless, please consider supporting our work by donating online at rewire.news donation. Now, here's Rachel. The first thing I do when people get in the car is I greet them, say, hi, I'm Rachel, and I'll be your Lyft driver today. And uh, they get in, and there's usually an exchange of pleasant, uh, pleasantries. And then um, at some point on the right, I'll ask them if they're Massachusetts voters. And if they say they are, Uh, I will say, well, I'd like to talk to you about question three. It's going to be on the ballot November 6th. Basically, I tell people that it's it's a uh, referendum on on a law that was passed two years ago that gave transgender people equal rights in this state with everybody else in public spaces, and um, that it's if it's approved, the transgender rights will stay in place and will continue to you know enjoy equal rights. If, it, if you say no, then we'll rescind that law and potentially take away those rights. And then I pull out my thing here and I show them this. Um, well, it's, it's a placard I carry. It just it says this, this November, vote three, vote yes on three, to defend dignity and respect for transgender people in mass. Tell them that that's a smaller size version of the placard that I carried in the Pride Parade. And sometimes the conversation from there will go in any number of directions. I don't, uh, I don't particularly try to lead it beyond that. Uh, but if they want to talk about what it's like to be transgender or you know, any, of that, any of that stuff, I talk about you know, how, it, how it is to be a transgender person and uh, how I lived uh, many, many years as the guy and how it was um, 
just not fulfilling myself as like living in black and white. Whereas once I transitioned full time, I was able to achieve a level of happiness that, to be honest with you, I didn't know existed before. We were living in England when I started school because dad was in the Air Force. And at five years old, I started school and they had to come in and, and drag me out of the girls' bathroom and were trying to tell me that I wasn't supposed to go in there. And I'm like, really? I thought I was being punished. I thought I'd done something wrong. Um, and so I used to not go to the bathroom at school. Back then, there were no words to describe it. You're just different. You're just different. You're just different. different. And that's huh, first grade is when I really found out I was different. Dad found out and tried to beat it out of me, which is in true military style. After two sessions like that, my mother intervened, and I'd be I'd be at home, and she'd come running in and hand me a truck and say, "Your father's on his way home. Play with this." When I would be like into her clothes and, and makeup and stuff like that. And she would just kind of like say, hey, you know, put that back or don't do that. Or, you know, <laughs> that's my favorite, leave it alone. <laughs> so, but she was never, she, she would never like say no or, or and say it was, it was, you know, forbidden or whatever, or punish me over it. It was always, we just need to like keep this close to it, close and not tell people. I was okay with that. Like any other kid, I wanted to make my mother happy and my dad and you know I wanted my I wanted to fit in with my peers and you know I didn't want to be that different kid and you really do try. I was outed in the seventh grade. And, you know, a friend of mine and I, well he was a friend, um, we were playing dress up and he attempted to rape me and I screamed and his mother came in and I got in trouble because I was wearing his sister's dress. He didn't get in trouble at all for holding me down and trying to take advantage. But, um, but that's just the, the way the culture was back then. And it was, you know, it was, it was traumatic, no question about it. And then he proactively outed me in the seventh grade to be, you know, so I wouldn't out him. I got beat up a lot. You know, the teachers would turn their backs back then and you know, my dad would be, oh, you got to stand up for yourself. You got to fight back, and this and the other thing. And it—that's not a solution. But the the silver lining was, I started hanging out with the nerds in school. When you're different, you tend to gravitate towards towards a group like that because they are more accepting. But then you get to college, you start experiencing alcohol and other things for the first time, and. Ah uh, yes, and you have a few slip-ups here and there, and you know it, it. It was still a problem, even even then. So, um, got married in that time frame. Had two lovely daughters, and um, she actually didn't know until near the end. Your wife. My first wife. Actually, our marriage fell apart for other reasons. I have a second wife as well. We're technically we're still married. Oh, 
we were having an argument one night about something not related to that. So I went in the back room as I normally did and sat on my computer behind the desk and it was kind of my 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 space, you know, and, and that night she actually followed me in there and continued the argument and she kept asking me what was wrong. You know, and I was like, no, nothing, you know, no big no big deal, whatever. I'm dealing with stress and blah blah blah. And you know, she kept pressing and this night she was not gonna give up. So Finally, I told her, and she, it's the only time since I've met her that I've ever seen her totally speechless for a number of minutes. She had no idea, believe it or not. Yeah. I still don't see how that happened, but I guess maybe I was a little bit better at hiding things than I thought. Were you surprised that she had no idea? Yes, I was surprised because I had come in and come into the house at other points in times and she would look at me and she goes, are you wearing eye makeup? And I would look at her and I would go, yeah. And she would just laugh and turn away. So she didn't want to know. Because <laughs> we could have had the conversation then under much more positive conditions. It was about 12 or 13 years ago that I was really, really struggling with, with, with my identity. Um, I had taken to, taken, you know, extended time after work uh, un, under the uh, guise of, I have to work over, or I'm gonna go see a supplier, stuff like that. And so I started, you know, dressing more and, you know, living with the fear of discovery and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and at one point I was suicidal and actually found the Tiffany Club in Waltham. And I called up and they're having an open house on a Tuesday night. I went there and I met Grace Stevens, who's my savior. And she kind of dragged me back from the edge and said, you need to go see a gender therapist, you need to start doing things in your life to understand this and, and see where it's going. Because at that point, I was, I was confused. I was just ready to say it's not worth it. You know, what am I doing? What am I, you know, why am I here? What am I doing? What am I living for? You know, and feeling this, this conflict, and it's called dysphoria. <laughs> That's what they call it. And it's, it's nasty. It's just very, it's, anx it's anxiety, it's depression, it's you know, just, just feeling terrible about yourself. And um, so it's, she kind of dragged me back from the edge and she set me up with a gender therapist, a great lady. She, she helped me a lot in terms of coming to terms with what was going on with me. And, you know, you don't walk in there, sit down and she says, so you're a girl. And you, you walk in there, you sit down, you start talking about how you feel and where you're coming from and what the conflict is inside. And, you know, she says, you can come here and you can dress while you're here, um, which I used to do. And it was very relaxing and, and you just feel grounded and being able to share with people was amazing because I had never been able to do that before. And knowing there are other people like me and being able to share with some of those people and see how common the feelings are and how common the life, the, the life stories are. It was, it was like a breath of fresh air. It truly was. It truly, you know, opened my eyes and to, what's, to what was going on and, and the world of possibilities that were around me. 
uh, in terms of transition. Now, here are people that are actively transitioning that are taking control of their lives, and some of them are living full-time at that point as, as their authentic selves and stuff, and you talk to them, and you get a sense of direction and a sense of you know, kind of how they managed in their lives and what brought them there and, and what they're doing. And having a group like that is just critical, absolutely critical. And that's one of the things that I think as a society, we really need to make sure that that's available to, especially children that are coming up that need the support. They need the support of their parents. Their parents need the support of other parents that are, that are dealing with it. And the, the kids need support from each other and from people that are, that are going through it as well. Um, that was the turning point. That truly was the turning point for me. I was, I, after that point, I, I knew that I was going to be okay. I think I had kind of a guy's orientation because if you approach it from a girl's orientation, girls somehow would sense that and they would not respond. So try to be a little bit more crude around the edges and and approach it more from a guy's angle, which I had plenty of role models for the, for that. Um, and it, I was successful. Now my therapist, who was one smart lady, told me that one of the reasons I chose Debbie as my wife, and by the way, it's 35 years we've been married, was that somehow I sensed that she would make me stay in the guy persona that she would be very conservative about that stuff and that she would really struggle with, with, with the, the girl aspects of my personality. She was right. <laughs> Where did your wife think you were when you were going through therapy and all of that? Well, she got, she got involved with the therapist as well. And, I, and after I, I, I didn't want to tell her at first, and my therapist was like, you really need to tell her. And I was like, oh. So September 5th, last year, was my first day driving as Rachel. It was absolute magic. Absolute magic. Because I realized that there was no going back to the guy stuff. My wife, you know, she had a therapist, I had a therapist, we had a couples therapist involved, and but... Uh, Essentially, she can't live with a woman, and I just couldn't be the guy anymore. And essentially, we're trying to stay friends. It's difficult, but I'll go see her tomorrow. Once a week, I go down there. Will yeah. you be slowing down with your political fight, depending on how this referendum turns out? Well, I think some of it will certainly take the pressure off. Uh, if the yes vote prevails, which I certainly hope it does, uh, I think it's going to take a lot of the pressure off. I mean, this. I sometimes feel pressured when I come out to people. I'm not sure it's what they want. I'm not sure they're totally comfortable with their driver coming out as transgender. I'm not sure in all cases that I'm totally comfortable in in, in disclosing it. Um, I just want to be the woman I am. I just want to be accepted as the woman I am. I just want to live as the woman I am. I don't want to have to deal with, you know, um, by the way, I'm, I'm a trans woman. I'm not, you know, I'm not a cis woman. And, you know. I don't want to have to explain myself. I just want to live my life. Um, I don't think my fears as a trans woman are different from the fears of most women. I've had men uh, touch me inappropriately in the car, and you know, I, I 
I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt, but at the same point in time, I've threatened to throw people out of the car too if, if, they're, if they're out of line. In Boston, it's been all positive, pretty much, with very few exceptions. Um, out in Worcester, which I go out there and, and drive occasionally, more to spread the word about question three than anything else, but um, out there, the, it's a, a more conservative area, and so the uh, responses I get are not always overwhelmingly positive. Um, there's a lot of, there'll, there'll be like a quietness after I talk, and I'm like, oops, I just, okay, they weren't ready for this. Um, but still, I'll try to be polite and try to be honest and, and give them the message, and if they respond, fine. If they don't, at least I've delivered the message. Everybody in Massachusetts should have equal rights. It's just as easy as that. You know, people say, why do you do this? <laughs> well, there you go. Um, it's, it's living your authentic life. It's being your authentic self. And, you know, there's, there's nothing that I think a human being can do that's more fulfilling than, than be true to who they are. One of the things that happened to me that I frequently relate to people is when I went on the Internet and I talked about the top five things, regrets that people have on their deathbed, Number one was that they lived their life according to what other people expected rather than how they truly felt inside. And I did not want to be the person, sorry, I get emotional about this, on uh, you know, laying on the, your deathbed saying coulda, shoulda, woulda. So I did something about it. Choiceless is a production of Rewire.News. We're the leading nonprofit journalism outlet devoted to reporting on reproductive and sexual health, rights, and justice. To stay up to date with our award-winning journalism, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Choiceless is created and produced by me, Jen Stanley. Mark Folletti is our executive producer. Jody Jacobson is our editor-in-chief. Music for Choiceless is by Douglas Helsel. This is my last episode of Choiceless, but perhaps not the last episode, so stay tuned for more info on that. I've really loved making this show and appreciate all of our storytellers and listeners and the whole Rewire.News community. Thanks for listening.